Individual identities, multiple cultures. Cultures are systems of meaning that allow us to make sense of the world out there. But cultures also enable and constrain us in our attempts to understand who we are. An important part of life history involves exploring how you and the person you are interviewing construct and enact identities. Just what kind of a person does each of us understand ourselves to be, and how did we arrive at that understanding? You will get at self-conceptualization partly by the way a person handles social relationships and selects clothing and other aspects of dress. But the most important material will be the ways in which a person constructs a self-presentation through stories and self-descriptions. Be alert to how people language their identities through what they say about the chapters of their life, but also listen to how self-descriptive statements come through in all kinds of manners you, matters you discuss. Another way of getting at identity is to directly ask your research participant how he or she would explain who he or she is. But before doing this, try it on yourself. Exercise seven, who am I? Ask yourself, who am I? Or what kind of a person am I? Write down at least 10 words or phrases in response to this question. I am, I am a, I am a person who, I am not a. Here are some answers I have been given by students in my classes. A unique individual, an American Jew, Afraid of death, Caucasian, a John Wayne fan, two four six, x x x x x x, whatever I want to be, middle class, gay, Korean but westernized, loves shopping, not sure who I am, overweight, not Princess Diana, bisexual, opposed to homosexuality an ABC, American-born Chinese. Not what I would have been if born in Russia. These answers show how people draw from the set of concepts that happens to be available to them and suggest the relative culturally constructed nature of our social identities. Another common set of answers focuses on personal characteristics, personality, or personal identity. Fat, I hate my body, a failure, neat, responsible, generous, a loner, independent, aggressive, moody, shy, depressed, adult child of an alcoholic. By using such terms, we may think we are understanding ourselves in personal psychological terms, but such self-constructions are highly cultural. There are standardized conceptualizations based on applying terms and concepts for personality and character made available to us by our different cultures. If you or I had been enculturated in Mumbai, India, rather than in the United States, our repertoire of concepts for answering the who am I question would be organized by Hindi or Maharati words and phrases from particular Indian frames of reference we might describe, oursel describe ourselves as Jain, Goan, or Brahmin. 
The meanings of identity terms exist in complex relationships of contrast with other linked terms. Such terms usually vary drastically or subtly from one culture to another. Even seemingly similar concepts will have different shades of meaning. Thus, what Indians think it means to be arat, woman, contrasts with related terms like admi, man. But what it means to be arat is not the same as being a woman in contemporary mainstream America. And what it means to be a hijva, a castrated male who wears a sari and enacts certain special female roles, is beyond the realm of American identity concepts. Moreover, many identity terms are highly evaluative. For example, all cultures have ideas about being handsome, beautiful, or attractive, but the definitional criteria vary considerably over time and space. How these criteria affect a person's sense of self-worth depends on the current local aesthetic tradition. Cultures contain not only different repertoires of words for self-description, but also differing theories of the self and its structure, functioning, and continuity. In Indian Hindu culture, reincarnation is widely accepted, and it is believed that one's being is born again and again. Many secular Americans see death as the absolute end of one's life. These contrasting theories affect the basis for self-understanding. Similar cultural differences characterize many psychological processes. Are dreams meaningless forms of cognitive garbage dumping, significant messages from unconscious levels of personality, or subtle indications from the spiritual world? Our attempts to understand both our interior experience and our sense of ourselves as particular kinds of people are filtered through evaluative ways of thinking provided by our cultures. The goal of life history is to try and understand something of how this works for the two people with whom you are concerned. Cultural Traditions and Identities While it can be useful to consider broad cultural contrasts, such as those between the United States and India, if we want to get a better sense of the complexity of culture and identity, we need to shift our attention to cultural traditions. Each broad societal culture has its own self-conception system, and people who learn two such traditions know two different ways of understanding themselves. Indians in the United States may be versed in theories of karma and also work with Western psychology. Such people have to negotiate multiple constructions of self and identity, and so does everyone else. Not only does each broad societal culture have its own network of concepts about identity and the self, but so too does virtually every cultural tradition. To recognize individual Americans as multicultural requires us to consider the ways in which they operate with multiple and often contradictory senses of identity. Consider Gina. In answering the who am I question, she brings up a variety of terms and phrases that are linked to her different cultural traditions, including her sense of ethnic identity. My Italianness is the driving force of my life. Although she feels proud to be Italian, she resists some aspects of the Italian-American tradition, such as judgments expressed by her aunts that she is a failure for having been divorced, 
While identifying as Catholic, she struggles to resist the traditional Catholic perspective through which she sometimes sees herself as sinful. When she thinks about herself in terms of her occupational tradition, she sees herself as a psychotherapist, and on good days, as a very effective therapist. Shifting to personal terms, Gina describes herself as thoughtful. I'm very thoughtful, blah, it kills me. Partly because of her orientation to Italian and religious codes that emphasize always doing for others. At times, drawing on her psychological traditions, she applies terms like depressive to herself as she ponders the effects of her own first family and her harsh treatment by her father. When she shifts to the Taekwondo tradition, she describes herself as a white belt who loves fighting and is really good with my fists. What is Gina's identity? She has many senses of self, but they are neither random nor a chaotic pastiche. Her various senses of self are directly linked to the concepts of the several cultural traditions she thinks with. race, gender, class, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and disability. Analytic categories such as race, gender, class, ethnicity, disability, nationhood, and sexual orientation are important in understanding many aspects of American society, partly because they help reveal lines of power, inequality, and oppression. For example, they help explain the underlying dynamics of work in the United States including who is privileged, who is underpaid, and who is excluded. Analysis based on these structural categories has often focused on large social patterns, such as differential pay for similar kinds of work. How do these categories apply in the study of individual lives? In answering the who am I question, Americans often use categorizations that mark them off as different, from an assumed reference set of others. Many US citizens do not note the fundamental fact that they are American unless they are living abroad or currently caught up in an international situation that emphasizes nationality. Similarly, cultural categorizations referring to race, gender, ethnicity, and class are often used, whether with pride or not, by people who identify themselves as different from an assumed mainstream white, male, heterosexual, wasp, middle-class typicality. Americans are more likely to identify themselves as black rather than white, as a woman rather than a man, and as gay or lesbian rather than a heterosexual. Consider how you and your subject use categories of difference in answering self-conception questions and what this means about your social locations in contemporary America. Individuals who move across societal boundaries are often caught between disjunctive category systems. A Pacific Islander who came to the United States considered himself superior at home to the outlying islanders, who were seen traditionally as unsophisticated and backward. Living in Florida, he was subjected to several racist incidents in which he was treated as inferior, such as by being denied entry to a white barbershop 
because of his relatively dark skin color. But I am not an African-American, he vainly protested. Just as the general cultures of different societies conceptualize race, class, and gender in very different ways, so too do the varied cultural traditions present in American society. We are all entangled in a variety of different ways of understanding these categories. The cultures of different racial ethnic groups do not define these terms the same way. Different class traditions conceptualize class differently. Different ethnic traditions view gender differently. Different religious and political traditions conceptualize race differently, and so on. Dominant American societal cultural traditions have traditionally privileged white, male, middle-class, heterosexual, non-disabled persons. Furthermore, the ideological systems within the dominant culture often obscure the degree to which this occurs by using explanatory systems that blame those who are excluded for their personal failure to attain the positions from which they are socially excluded. Conversely, a variety of counter-traditions of liberation and resistance have arisen that have sought to redefine the situation in ways that raise the status of those who have been excluded. Most Americans are familiar with and affected by a variety of conflicting ways of thinking about difference in relation to their identities, social situations, and social relationships. For example, the biracial professor Joshua Woodford interviewed is often defined as African-American, as if this term somehow encompassed his personhood. In fact, he is also conceptualized by himself and others as half-white, German, a professor, a baseball fan, a therapist, and an opera fan. Thus, his own sense of self is differentiated far beyond the racial ethnic label. However, given the per- peculiar salience of race in the United States, his other identities are often affected by the fact that he is seen as an African-American professor, opera fan, and therapist. Similarly, sexual orientation exists in complex relationships to other cultural traditions, including those of religion. Another young man interviewed by Woodfork currently identifies as gay, but expects to marry and become straight later because his family's religious tradition, that of the Jehovah's Witnesses, disapproves of homosexuality. Exercise 8. Categories of Difference Consider the set of cultural traditions you were entangled in while growing up. How were race, class, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and disability generally conceptualized in each tradition? What labels were used, and how did the perspectives involved overlap and contrast? Think of several specific incidents in which some of these concepts were manifested in conversation or action, and analyze the incidents. How were you involved? How did you feel? How did you react? How did the incident affect you? And what did you learn? How do you now conceptualize difference in terms of your cultural traditions? To what extent do you accept the orientations of these traditions? Do you seek to modify and resist them? 
How do you handle the contrasts among the traditions you think were? Social worlds, roles, and dramas. Answers to the who am I question also include terms for social roles. Here are some examples. A good wife, a lifeguard, a professor, massage therapist, a maid, Eric's girlfriend, a waitress, a psychotherapist, Catherine's niece, a World War II reenactor. Another important aspect of life history involves an exploration of the social situations a person regularly passes through and the ways he or she plays the roles that the social worlds require. Many of the different cultural traditions we think with are embodied in particular concrete social institutions. When Clara goes to the ashram, the Tibetan Buddhist cultural tradition prevails and she is a disciple. When she goes to work, the therapeutic tradition dominates and she becomes a therapist. When she goes home, she steps into an American middle-class family system, and so forth. The cultural structuring and power dynamics of each of such worlds typically require us to play a social role that matches the role of others in these worlds. At work, Claire plays therapist to people who act as her clients. When she goes home, she plays American mother to her son and daughter. To be fluent in a cultural tradition is, in part, to know the expectations and obligations of the roles in the social worlds where that tradition prevails. Knowing what is expected of Claire as a therapist, a a Tibetan Buddhist, and a mother is very important, but we also need to know how she actually plays these roles in the particular social dramas with which she is involved. Role theory abstracts and generalizes about the role of the therapist or mother. This is useful and it has a certain reality for individuals as well as group analysis. People in any institution generalize about patterns and rules of role play. For example, doctors are supposed to do X, most nurses do Y, and orderlies generally do Z. But an individual who occupies any such role doesn't play it in the same way as the next person. Attention to variation in strategy, skill, and style, in conformity and resistance, and in desire and motivation is crucial for life history research. Role theory has long recognized that people have to switch from one role to another as they move from one social world to another. A woman who is a lieutenant in the police force and a mother at home needs to make a rather drastic shift as she changes social worlds. It has been less sufficiently recognized that we also need to understand how a a person carries cultural traditions from one world into another and how this affects the personal playing of social roles. The individual experience of social worlds and the switching back and forth among them. For example, Claire and Gina both play the role of therapist in the same sector of the Washington, D.C. suburbs, and each had several years of postgraduate training at the same psychological institute. However, 
Gina plays therapist very differently from how Claire enacts the same role. Some of these variations may have to do with personalities, but others are connected to their differing cultural traditions. Gina and Claire both know that the roles of therapist and client are governed by legal rules, professional ethics, and customary practice, and to a degree they follow these norms. However, Claire is more conservative in her handling of the relationship. She is very careful about holding to the 50-minute time limit on therapy sessions, and she never gets involved with clients outside the office. Gina is much less formal about timing and regularly gets heavily involved in her clients' lives outside the therapy session. She goes with clients to court, 12-step programs, family homes, hospitals, restaurants, and grave sites. Much of this variation between Gina and Claire stems from the ways they have developed their practice in relation to the cultural traditions they think with. Gina explicitly brings her version of her Italian-American ethnic tradition into the role. Although she is aware that some other therapists see what she is doing as excessive or even unethical, much of her sense of what to do with clients come from her ideas about rightness. I guess I am depending on that gut sense of mine about what is the right thing to do here, not what does the book say. Many of her ideas about rightness come directly out of the code of relations in Italian-American culture. Growing up in an extended family culture, you always find someone to intervene for you, affirm you, stick up for you. My clients don't have that. She directly extends her sense of family to clients, and for her, this means going out of her way to help them any way she can. This includes a strong, protective, fighter dimension. Consider this example. There is this young woman that I work with, and she got fired from her job unjustly. She was working as a hostess at the local restaurant, and she went to work when she had the flu. She was really sick, and the jerkball boss fired her because she wasn't up to speed, and that was just outrageous. So I called the manager, who was in charge of the neighborhood women's group, and we were in there last weekend, and we saw this waitress, and she was the best. Etc., etc. We made life miserable for him. She wouldn't go back, it was just to torture him, which I thought was a pretty healthy model for my client. Exercise nine, social roles. Make a list of the social roles, uh, social worlds you move through on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. List the cultural labels for the roles you are expected to play in each world and the complementary roles of the people with whom you interact. Identify some of the legal and customary expectations and obligations that govern particular role relationships. How do issues of power and social control play out here? What role violations are people concerned with and how are they enforced? How is the way you play these roles similar to and different from how they are typically played? Consider a story or incident of role violation or resistance. 
What does the story say about how you play your role? How is your style of role play related to cultural traditions other than those that officially prevail in a particular social world? Identities and identification. As we learn more about how our research partners play their personal and social identities, we will begin to get a feel for how they react to certain situations. One way of furthering this understanding is to deliberately try to imagine what it might be like to be in their shoes in their situations. We often half-consciously identify with others. In watching a film, we may identify with particular characters, projecting our subjectivity onto them and vicariously feeling how they experience a situation in the story, how they are smitten by this person, shamed by another, led to feel sorry for someone else, and how they then decide to take one course of action instead of another. Similarly, as a friend tells us a story, We feel his or her initial anxiety and frustration, and then elation and relief, almost as if it were happening to us. This capacity for identification is deliberately cultivated in acting school, where students are given exercises to help them identify with, or become, the characters they will portray on stage. In life history work, it is also useful to cultivate our capacity for identification It is true, of course, that there are complications and limitations, and that we can never completely feel what someone else feels. It's a girl, a guy, a white, an Italian, an Asian thing you wouldn't understand. But we can take such understanding as is possible to a higher level via deliberate attempts to identify with our research participants. The basic method is to consciously try and imagine what it is like to be the other person with his or her cultural background and cultural traditions, assuming one of his or her social identities and encountering a particular social situation. The point, of course, is not to think about how you would respond to a given situation, given your cultural traditions, but how he or she might respond, given his or her traditions. Consider a recent experience of your own, one that you might tell us as a kind of story. Go back into your memory of the experience, adopt the social role you had, and re-enter the situation. Recall what it looked and felt like to you then, how you saw what was before you, and how you thought to yourself, using the words and phrases you did, in deciding what to do. Consider how the mix of cultural traditions you brought to the experience influence your thoughts, feelings, and reactions. Negotiating conflicting cultures and competing values. 
Competing values. As we have seen, contemporary Americans juggle a variety of different cultural traditions, such as work traditions, religious traditions, ethnic traditions, and psychological traditions. Typically, at least some of these traditions do not fit well together because they include such different values, that is, very different ideas about what makes life worthwhile and what is important, desirable, and undesirable. A primary function of culture is to offer people a plausible and convincing worldview and an ordered set of ideas about what is good and bad. Cultures tell us what is important, how to choose, how to feel, and how to act. Humans are not born with this kind of cognitive orientation to life. We have to learn it through culture. Each culture offers a way of creating order out of chaos, but there are many different ways of making sense of the world and lots of different values to choose from. Any given system is one arbitrary way of ordering things. Another function of culture is to make us ethnocentric, to convince us that the way we learned is the way things are, and that other ways, the worldviews of people in other groups, are misguided, confused, or deluded. The difficulty in learning and thinking with multiple cultural traditions is that the answers they provide to questions about what is important are not only different but often contradictory as well. To think with several cultures is to be caught among contradictory systems of meaning. How do individuals negotiate different systems of meaning? How do conflicting values work at the level of individual experience? What strategies do the two individuals you are studying use to handle cultural contradictions? Mainstream cultural conflicts. Every large-scale cultural system contains at least some contradictions. Mainstream America tells us to be individualistic, but it also tells us to conform and fit in. It tells us, through mass media advertisements and holiday rituals, that eating is gratifying and satisfying, but it also tells us that we should be thin. It tells us not only to work hard, but also to keep priorities straight and spend lots of time with our families. These contradictions are culturally recognized as difficult, and confusion, stress, and even psychiatric problems are attributed to them. Sometimes it is useful to directly ask yourself and your participant what, kind of, what kinds of value conflicts do you experience and how do you deal with them? Given the complexities of this area, it is also useful to try and generate pertinent material indirectly. Exercise 13, Goals for the Future. Imagine yourself 10 years in the future. What kinds of situations would you like to be in? What for you would be a very good future? What for you would be a bad future? Try to imagine what such a future would be like. Outline or write a one or two page description of each scenario. To analyze what our answers to questions about the future reveal about our values, 
we need to consider the relationship between individual values and cultural values. Although we often think of values as personal, the individual's meanings and purposes are always closely connected to the values that characterize the cultures to which he or she has been exposed. A person may construct a cultural value in original and innovative ways, or may even resist a value strongly and seek out alternative values. But in doing so, the person is usually influenced by some other cultural or countercultural tradition. Through agreement or opposition, an individual's sense of values is always closely related to the cultural traditions he or she has encountered and engaged with, including those of national societal cultures. Despite variation in age, gender, ethnic affiliation, religion, and class, there is considerable similarity in the values American students express in this exercise. For example, three American values are particularly prominent. Consider the following responses. One of the worst things would be going through a bad marriage and a bad divorce. That's why I really want to make sure I am in love enough to last a lifetime. I have trouble supporting my family on the poor wage they're giving me at the fast food joint. I will drive a black Saab Turbo 900 and our beautiful house will be 5,000 to 6,000 square feet. I couldn't just be a mother, nor could I only work. As these responses suggest, the individual in America is virtually forced to negotiate some kind of relationship with the society's dominant cultural values, such as occupational achievement and success, materialistic affluence, and the romantic love-marriage-family syndrome. The ways they do so vary considerably, but involve some ambivalence. Even acceptance of dominant values is often tinged with a concern that all is not well here. This ambivalence is itself part of the contemporary mainstream culture. Each value is debated and problematized in the public discourse, and this is reflected in individual conceptualizations. Drawing on her own experience and statistics about the prevalence of divorce, Gina often expresses humorous cynicism about love, marriage, and male-female relationships. Joking that she should tell the couples she counsels, it won't work, stop dreaming, bail out now. But in fact, she rarely says anything like this. As one woman noted, I don't know if I'll get married, but it's something that's done in America. If you don't, people think there's something wrong with you. As such statements suggest, Americans know that others expect them to accept these values and will require an explanation for non-compliance. Americans do not just negotiate a relationship with the dominant culture's values. They must also negotiate a relationship with the values of each of the half dozen or more additional cultural traditions they work with. All cultural traditions, whether those of work, religion, politics, ethnicity, or therapy, contain explicit and implicit conceptions 
of the desirable and the undesirable. One of the complexities of life for all of us in this society is the problem of working out a relationship with the competing values of our various cultural traditions. Younger middle-class students in my classes, for example, often imagine balancing career, love, marriage, family, children, pets, civic responsibility, leisure interests, and particular religious and ethnic values much more successfully than is typical in the case of real-life America. Values in multiple cultural traditions. Clara's experiences illustrate how all of us can work. Clara originally hoped to make a career in music. As a musically talented young adult, she trained extensively to be an opera singer. I identified my self-worth with my ability and wanted to be a singer. As she sees it, the general values of this career, which come to those with a high level of talent, ability to perform under pressure, extreme dedication, good luck, and astute political maneuvering, include the winning of competitive musical scholarships and awards, training at the most prestigious schools of music, selection for high-level companies, and eventually the aesthetic satisfaction, acclaim, and financial rewards of performing at a high level and being recognized as among the best in this profession. Clara had the talent and competitive drive necessary to make success a real possibility, but for a variety of reasons, including ambivalence about performing in public, she eventually gave up on this career. Years later, after becoming a psychotherapist, she returned to her music and began taking voice lessons again, but not with the idea of making a career or publicly performing as a singer. I wondered why. At first, I thought this activity might be simply a minor hobby, but it turned out that her return to music was more important than this, and quite revealing of the values she holds. First, there was an important aesthetic dimension. Speaking of one of Schubert's pieces, she says, It was a tragic song. The melody was sublime. I loved the song. I adored the song. And I wanted to do it justice. But there was much more as well, for her return to singing involved a hard, sustained effort at self-mastery. It was like conquering something. For a lot of years when I wanted to be a singer, I struggled a lot with really going against my nature because I am not an extrovert and I am not a performer. And I would just be terrorized at the performance. And in part because of that, I had other difficulties with my singing. And when I started studying again, I had to undo a lot of bad habits and there was a period of time when I really couldn't sing at all. It was like taking something apart and putting it back together. Eventually I was able to return and to say I want to work on this because there is a challenge, and I want satisfaction from this, and I want the pleasure of knowing that I can take a beautiful piece of music and express myself in a beautiful way. And so the lessons from then on when I was out of the running, were really 
to conquer my own mountains. And there were things that I began to be able to sing that I could never sing previously. And I got a great deal of gratification, a sense of self-mastery. Because it was not only a technical challenge, but it was a mind challenge. You know, those balances between being not too self-conscious, but being self-conscious enough to keep on top of things. Clara's new relation to opera was meaningful, aesthetically, and also expressed and blended values from other traditions that are important to her, including dimensions of her Buddhist psychology, such as letting go, going to your own truth, and staying focused inside. Even more closely involved are the values from her psychotherapeutic tradition, as in overcoming and mastering a psychological challenge. Clearly, Clara's attitude towards singing parallels her psychotherapeutic practice. Interestingly, she also equates the difficulties and satisfaction she gets from doing therapy well with the satisfaction she gets from music. Psychotherapy requires stepping outside of my own ego and then letting it be whatever it's going to be, letting it unfold without trying to maneuver it from an intellectual level. And in that way, it's very similar to music. And I can get into the same dances around it and getting perfectionistic sometimes and giving myself a hard time and hating it like I would hate music sometimes. And yet, when it goes well, when I am in there, when somebody leaves a good therapy session, I say, boy, I'm glad I do this. Here we see how Claire balances blends and integrates the values of an aesthetic tradition with two of her other major meaning systems. Balancing more diverse systems is sometimes very difficult. For example, the national cultural systems of Pakistan and mainstream America that Salma switches between offer fundamental value contradictions around the goal of family and marriage. Should one strike out in the singles world and look for a spouse through dating rituals and marry for love, or should one defer to the wisdom of one's family elders and submit to an arranged marriage? Similarly, Gina believes in both Italian-American working-class mainstream culture and upper-middle-class cultural systems. But one says that women should be stay-at-home mothers who endure an unsatisfactory marriage to serve men. While the other says that women should fulfill themselves through careers and that if a marriage is not working, divorce is an appropriate solution. If people have a sympathetic feeling for two or more strongly contradictory cultures, how do they handle their contradictions? Cultural conflict can be disorienting and emotionally painful, as evidenced by the difficulties adults usually have in trying to adapt to an unfamiliar society. Studies of culture shock indicate that after an initial honeymoon stage in which the migrant to a new society feels exhilarated by cultural differences, a period of disintegration typically follows. Here the person is trying to manage 
two contradictory cultural systems and is expected to undergo confusion, disorientation, loss, apathy, isolation, loneliness, inadequacy, anger, rage, nervousness, anxiety, and frustration. So how do people manage? In an essay on conflict and accommodation of mainstream and minority values, George and Louise Spindler analyze the pattern strategies that individuals often seem to use. Their discussion is based on ethnography with Nemomi Native Americans who are exposed to both traditional Native American culture and mainstream American culture. The problem is that these systems involve irreconcilable differences. Both groups value something we might call power. Mainstream Americans define power through control over others in hierarchical structures or aggressive, competitive manipulation of social situations and the accumulation of money. Such behavior is so negative in the traditional menomini view that individuals who act this way are subject to negative sanctions, such as gossip and witchcraft. Traditional menominees value a non-competitive, self-effacing style of behavior. For them, power refers to spiritual power obtained through their vision quest and other relations with supernatural allies. Similarly, mainstream Americans value exploitative use of nature, while the menominees seek harmony with nature. While some of the Spindler's examples are simplified, they correctly identify many drastic contradictions between the two cultures. What does a person who is heavily enculturated in both systems do? The Spindlers report several standard resolutions. One involves giving primary allegiance to one system. Hence, some Minomines reaffirm the traditional Native American culture and denigrate the American mainstream, while others reject the traditional Native American culture, conceptualize it as primitive, and pledge their allegiance to the modern American mainstream. Others try to simultaneously hold both systems by separating them and code switching, for example, by being menomini at home and mainstream American at work. Still others deliberately seek to synthesize or blend elements of both cultures, as by using home decorations that are both Indian and American. The idea of hyphenated Americans, for example, Italian Americans or Chinese Americans, sometimes implies this kind of mixing and blending. In yet another pattern solution, constructive marginality, individuals try to avoid identifying, identifying with either culture. Using detachment and cynicism, they place themselves at a distance from both systems and identify with a marginal or outsider position. Finally, the Spindlers discuss personal withdrawal, where the individual who is torn by conflict withdraws or escapes through alcohol, drugs, fantasy, or the hallucinations and delusions of mental illness. 
the Spindler's analysis suggests that knowing or having more than one cultural tradition is a terrible burden that can lead directly to suffering, alcoholism, and mental illness. However, it is clear that most individuals not only manage multiculturalism, but often handle it well and even thrive on it. How can this be? What is the good side of having multiple cultures? Actually, many of the adaptations the Spindlers mention can be positive. Multiple frames of reference offer many advantages, as well as problems. Knowing more than one tradition loosens the stranglehold that a single culture may place on our understanding. Multiple cultures often offer multiple possibilities, and by offering choices, individual agency is supported. The multicultural situation can make for a more varied, autonomous, and interesting life. Salma, an immigrant from South Asia, describes this positive outcome in the first reading of part two. At first, she experienced the differences between American culture and Indian culture as hard to handle, but later she found them advantageous. Instead of regretting the fact that I was a part of two cultures, I began to enjoy it. I was a much richer and more balanced person because I knew of two different cultures. I had the advantage of picking and choosing aspects of both cultures that I wanted to retain or discard. Other solutions can be at least somewhat adaptive, as when the individual successfully plays at a non-committed but creative level with a set of traditions to which he or she grants no personal allegiance. Even personal withdrawal, which the Spindlers portray as a pathological defense mechanism, can be creative and effective. Temporary escape can be useful if it is not too damaging, and all individuals who experience cultural contradictions probably make some use of withdrawal and fantasy. Fantasy resolves cultural contradictions that are difficult to manage. This vicarious experience is pleasurable, and out of it one may find real solutions. For example, Gina sometimes resolves several of the contradictions of her actual social situation through fantasy identification with a fictional movie figure that magically resolves some of her cultural conflicts. This identification provides temporary escape and has also helped her develop functional solutions. Imagination is much more than mere escape. It is often the place where creative synthesis or aesthetic balance can be achieved, where one can mix, blend, and balance different cultural traditions. Indian psychiatrist Sudhir Kakar, who moves back and forth easily between Indian and Western traditions, describes one form of the solution. A degree of alienation from one's culture, a deep exposure to other world views, may indeed be necessary for heightening one's perception about the culture and society one is born into. Marginality, alienation, ambivalence, boundary, 
are perhaps not the right words to describe what I mean here, since they connote a subjective experience of pain and exclusion without indicating the presence of a corresponding heightening of the self and the curious comfort that comes after the first unease has been accommodated. Media systems and multiple cultures. Contemporary Americans not only pass through many different social worlds that involve actual face-to-face -face interaction, we also vicariously participate in many different media worlds. After beginning the day with a newspaper, we may subsequently tune in to radio, television, film, books, magazines, chat rooms, and websites. As we engage with any particular media form, we slip mentally and emotionally out of the real world and enter mediated cultural worlds. Usually our use of media has something to do with our actual social and cultural worlds. Sometimes a person's use of media is mainly escape, a mental vacation from the stress and strain of ordinary life, including the clash of cultural traditions. In other cases, the use of media functions as a vicarious return to a currently missing social world, as when South Asian immigrants to the United States seek out films, novels, cable television programs, and newspapers from India. In other instances, people supplement their actual relationships to particular cultural traditions through media, as when Clara reads Tibetan Buddhist texts, or Gina listens to a Christian radio program. Sometimes such media even address the problem of conflicting values, as when Gina's radio program discusses living a Christian life in the midst of a secular culture, or when Claire's book discusses applying Buddhism to issues in everyday American life. Our use of media often has complex con connections to our actual social and cultural worlds. One way of exploring this is to consider the relationships we develop with particular figures from our media worlds, such as politicians, musicians, sports figures, authors, talk show hosts, and fictional characters. Sometimes, as with Gina, understanding a person's use of a particular media figure is important to understanding how the person negotiates multiple cultures. Gina surprised me when she told me that one of her heroes was Steven Seagal, an actor who has starred in a series of violent martial arts action films. He's great. He doesn't say much, but he's smooth. He's my ideal. He walks through a crowd, and without even hardly breathing, he's breaking bones. I'll be watching videos, and my kids are calling about dinner, and I'll say, Get your own dinner. I'm watching Hard to Kill. Why, I wondered, why would a social worker who deals regularly with the victims of all-too-real violence be attracted to films like Hard to Kill and Out for Justice, where the character portrayed by Steven Seagal is vividly shown beating, maiming, and killing dozens of villains? In exploring a person's connection with a favorite media figure, it is useful to consider how the person relates to the figure. Often there are several dimensions. Gina considers Seagal attractive, so that in that sense he is a kind of romantic figure. 
At other times, she conceptualizes him as a kind of brother, a male ally protector. But mainly, Gina conceives of Seagal as an idealized self, someone she imagines she would like to be. Thus, she identifies with Seagal in his dream, in his films, and imagines being someone like him in some of her daydreams. But why? It turns out that there is a variety of important cultural connections. In puzzling over her attraction, Gina is sure first that Seagal's appeal has something to do with the fact that he is Italian. He enjoys the fantasized representation of Italian-American culture, however stereotypical in the films, and is amused by Seagal's Italian flourishes, such as his adept use of respect etiquette in dealing with a mafia don in Out for Justice. But she is equally impressed by his willingness to go against the mafia don and the judgments of Italian-American culture. Thus, Seagal represents to her someone who is loyal to and fluent in the culture, but independent of its judgments and social pressures, pressures she feels all too strongly in her own life. In addition, Seagal, a black belt in Aikido, serves as an ideal in her martial arts practice, and her teacher even works this connection into his instructions. In watching the- oh, finally, Gina imaginatively equates the people who have abused her own female clients, usually men, with the villains of Seagal's films. In watching the films, Gina can thus imaginatively meld her own work in supporting her clients, whom she treats as family, with Seagal's out-for-justice actions. In some of Gina's daydreams, these connections to her cultural traditions are seen to be at play. Multiple cultures and dreams. Most of us keep our different worlds somewhat separate. We use one cultural tradition in church, another at work, and a third at home. However, all our traditions are housed together in our heads. Here, our religious, work, and family traditions and concerns are all simultaneously present, jostling together in our minds. When we are asleep and dreaming, they may come into direct relationship with each other. Traditionally, life history researchers try to use dreams to analyze the psychological patterns of their informants, but dreams can also be valuable for cultural explorations. Multiple cultures in internal dialogues. Strange and interesting as they are, dreams remain murky and problematic. What people make of them is clearer and more revealing than what they really mean. Certain, certain waking states offer more promise for cultural investigation. Just as the language, concepts, symbols, and ways of thinking from different cultural traditions appear together in dreams, so also do they come into relationship during waking states, particularly in the mental wandering, sometimes referred to as stream of consciousness, daydreams, or internal dialogues. When a person is not engaged in rational, focused thought, or in some compelling activity, 
his or her consciousness tends to wander away into a flow of inner imagery, feelings, and internal conversation. Here we find a sponta spontaneous, semi-conscious flow of alternating memories, fantasies, anticipations of the future, idle musings, and forms of internal talk. While the dominant American culture teaches us either to ignore this pervasive dimension of experience or to conceptualize it as a mildly negative psychological process, the stream of consciousness is frequently a functional and always a highly cultural phenomenon. Since the individual conducts memories, fantasies, and internal conversations in terms of the language concept systems of the cultural traditions he or she thinks with, the stream of consciousness is revealing of the individual's personal version of these subjective cultures and of his or her methods of negotiating among them. After I asked Gina to keep track of her internal dialogues, she reported several examples, including the one that occurred while she was driving to Washington, D.C. First, I experienced detailed memories, again and again, of the phone call I received that morning from the high school counselor who said her son was in trouble again. He's in danger of suspension. I felt tension, concern, and anger. I'll kill him. I also felt guilt about failing as a mother. What's wrong with me? The traffic was running smoothly, so I decided to pray Try and calm down. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord. At this point, a blue car suddenly cut in front of me, and I had to break. Blessed art thou among women, you son of a bitch, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. This brief segment provides an amusing illustration of how we mentally jump back and forth from one cultural meaning system, one role, and one mode of discourse to another. Here, Gina shifts from the language of her family tradition, to her psychological tradition, to her religious tradition, to her feisty Italian-American competitive tradition, and back to her religious tradition all within a few minutes in the same situation. Research suggests that internal dialogues typically reflect an individual's current concerns, so they can be very useful in identifying values and value conflicts. However, not everyone is open to talking about this dimension of experience, and it is best explored with a participant with whom you have worked for some time and where good rapport exists. If you are working with such a person, it is well worth trying to explore internal dialogues. As with dreams, we can ask ourselves and our participants to monitor this activity and to write down records of what can be remembered.